Well, welcome everybody. Good to be back. I feel like I have to preach with an increased sense of urgency because who is not hungry after watching Bacon cook for about 30 seconds straight? All of a sudden my stomach is growling and I know some of y'all need to have dinner. But it is good to be back. I'm glad you're here. It's funny watching that uh, Easter video where they're in Williamsburg and like winter jackets. I feel like that was us two days ago. And then today it's so nice to get out of the house and drive with my windows down on the way to church. So it's good to see everyone here. Uh, this is my first sermon since my wife and I came back as the white party of three from India. So uh, it's great to be back. But uh, it's also nice to see that the party has gotten bigger since I left. I got back two weeks ago when Steve Rogerio preached, and I was looking around. I was like, there's some new faces here i got to introduce myself to. Uh, felt the same last week when Anthony preached. How, how awesome was it to have our own Anthony Hiltz preaching last weekend here at the pulpit? It is his birthday tonight. So if you have not said happy birthday to Anthony, let him know he's a great guy. Tell him thank you. You're a gift to the church. You're a gift to the body of Christ. You're a gift to Steph and I. So thank you, sir. Be blessed. Happy birthday. But one way that we also uh, grew practically before my wife and I left for India is we hosted something at the Nowatneys that we do. It's called Discovering City Life. And it's really just for people that want to know more about the church, possibly get rooted at the church. So it's been about a month because Steph and I have been gone. But what I wanted to do in this moment is if you came to Discovering City Life and you attended that class to get to know more about City Life and to get rooted at City Life, if you could stand where you are, I just want to have everybody recognize you if you're here and you attended that class those weeks ago because it's, it's this big... And it's big, not because you guys can be seated, not because they get like some extra perks or a parking spot, but it's because they've said that they want to be a part of what we're doing here in the Suffolk region. They want to reach with us and grow with us and, and invest with us. And, and, and we're excited. I love Discovering City Life because even as Emily was exhorting during worship, everybody comes in here with a different story. Everybody's coming out of a different past. They're pressing on towards a different future. And it's so exciting um, and encouraging to just hear where everybody's coming from, what God's been doing in their lives. And I would just encourage you, you can do the Christian walk alone, but why would you? Because the church is it's a wealth of wisdom, but it's also a wealth of experiences, of perspectives that will enrich your walk if you let it. So I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're already here at church on a Saturday night of all days. But if you're here tonight and you're just checking out church, or maybe you drift, you plug and unplug, and I just encourage you, find a home, find a place you can get rooted, because for every person who's walking this faith walk, God has a home for you, a place where you can get rooted and grow and bear fruit. Amen? But we're going to shift gears. We're going to segue. We're going to start a series tonight called The Unusual Suspects, and it's going to take us to and through Easter, and it's simply profiles of grace in unexpected places. But to kind of get our minds moving, what are some heroes you looked up to? Maybe as a kid, maybe now, but people and characters so big that it, it shapes your character and perspective. Heroes, who are some heroes in your life? Luke Skywalker, yes, my entire childhood, Luke Skywalker. Captain America, the American hero. Hulk? Oh, yes. We're going to just line another comic books. Denise, you're going to keep it going? Amelia Earhart. All right, you broke it up. We can went to history here. History. Anybody else? David, who slew Goliath. Yes, we've had history, comics, and now we get the Bible. Thank you. Yvette. Wonder Woman. Justice League trailer just dropped. Anybody excited for that? Eh, that floating anybody's boat? All right. Anybody else? Your high school teacher. That was my mama. I was homeschooled, but yeah. 
So I can, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Anybody else? Mother Teresa, good one, good one. So as a kid, I can kind of, I feel you on Captain America, on Hulk, Wonder Woman, all of those. I, I grew up, and, and I love superheroes. I have Iron Fist comics on my shelf, so I'm, one day, we, we brought a kid back from India, one day I'll end up watching the new Netflix series. Probably not anytime soon, but uh, I'm looking forward to it one day, and I have no shame telling you that as an adult, I still, I dig superheroes, right? As a teen, I wanted to draw superheroes. I was convinced that was going to be my life calling, that I was going to just do that as a living, but Marvel went bankrupt, so God took my life a different direction, which is probably good because I'd probably still be single, right? <laughs> just drawing comics for a living, but here I am right? So let me pose a different question. You already hit on it. Who are some of your favorite heroes in scripture? We had David, anybody else, people in scripture? Paul, good one. Deborah, Moses, Ruth, Jesus. I was waiting for Jesus. I was was thinking that might be the first one, but it's a good answer. Hezekiah, good one. Mary, Noah, Esther, Daniel's a good one. James, I'm encouraged, man. First heroes, eh, but heroes from the Bible, we're rolling. We're rolling. Anybody else? Samson. (laughs) Mary Magdalene, good one. Joseph, yeah. You know, we, we flock to heroes in the Bible. We rally to them in Scripture. Again, whether it's Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, Daniel, or like Robert said, Jesus. And I think when we read Scripture, we so often will put ourselves in their shoes, right? Like when we read about Moses and the Israelites going through the wilderness, I like to put myself in Moses' shoes, the strong leader, the man of courage. I don't like to put myself with the Israelites who were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and, and thick-skulled, Right? When we read about David going after Goliath, right, I like to picture myself as David, full of courage, not like the Israelites who were timid and lacked courage and wouldn't go out and fight him. We like to see ourselves as the heroes, and I think this is, this is made common simply by our popular books, our popular movies, because typically in a good movie or a good book, the, the protagonist is the hero. It's someone at the center of the story who we root for, we empathize with, and we see ourselves in, like... I, I immediately know that I'm watching a movie or reading a book or just witnessing art that isn't very good when I simply don't care what happens to any of the characters. I realize this is, this is not capturing me because I don't empathize with the characters. I don't see the world through their eyes, and I'm not emotionally invested. And I think sometimes we can go through our lives in similar ways. We see things through our own eyes, so naturally we begin to place ourselves at the center. Naturally, we want to be the hero at the center of it all. But if we get brutally honest with ourselves, we will find ourselves in the pages of Scripture, but sometimes it's not in the role of, quote, unquote, hero. Like you might ask, well, how could the Israelites, right? how could they build a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai? How could they turn to idol worship when they finally get to the promised land? And yet every time we put our hopes and our minds on something other than God and invest in that instead of God, we put our foot in their shoes. We might say, man, how could the Pharisees be so stubborn in their legalism, that they be blind to Jesus and the grace that he brought. Yet every time we use the law to hammer ourselves or hammer others, we step into their shoes. You know, to read the Bible with us at the center in the hero's shoes constantly is is to read it in a flawed way. Because to read it properly is to realize the history of brokenness that we're a part of that Jesus came to make right. 
You know, the Bible is centered on Jesus. It points to Jesus, and it culminates and is summed up in Jesus. As a teenager, I wanted to draw superheroes, but now as an adult, I get to spend my days magnifying the one true hero in history, Jesus Christ. And tonight I hope to do that by reading and pulling from, it's Ephesians 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Now this passage has been called by many uh, Paul's best synopsis of grace and salvation. So don't zone out, it's a, it's a hefty portion, but I believe this This package of verses can speak more in this moment than I could all night because it's God's word and it speaks to his salvation. So listen up. We're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Well, it's a powerful scripture, but I want to just start with this thought that he, he says twice in this passage, which is just all of us, that all of us born in sin were in need of grace, that we didn't just live among the broken. We were broken. We lived like the broken. All of us at one point were, like it says in this passage, by nature deserving of wrath. But where wrath was deserved, even grace comes instead. He saves us by grace. And I love when you ask the question why, it says right here, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And I hope that in this series, by looking at profiles of grace and people that experienced his grace, we'll begin to dig into the incomparable riches. Profiles of God's grace in unexpected places. Profiles that really, they profile us, that we should see ourselves in. And tonight I want to look at a woman named Rahab from the Old Testament. But before we even do that, as we read in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, it digs into this Jew-Gentile divide that pervaded the broken and divided culture that Jesus walked in. God's chosen people and the other guys. Us and them. And nowhere in the Bible is it as uncomfortably clear as the conquest of the promised land in the Old Testament by the Israelites, specifically in the book of Joshua. And right at the beginning of this conquest, they they cross the Jordan River and they come up on Jericho. We see it in Joshua 2. And if you've got your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under your pew. You can find Joshua 2 because that's where we're parking it for the rest of the night. But a lot of us are familiar with the name Jericho. A lot of us are familiar with the story of Jericho because if you did grow up in church, there was that song, 
right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. I don't remember the melody, but those are the words. Even I know that. But the kids' song, the chorus stops there. Because the story from there, it breaks from a a PG rating as they take the city by the sword. It begins to read as a story that's void of grace. And we see in this story the tension of, of God's truth and his grace. We see the tension of the fact that God is a loving God and God is a judging God. But within that pairings is a, is a tension that we shouldn't ignore, that we shouldn't invo- avoid, because in that tension there's also a beautiful balance. Because in a series of grace, you know, as we start it tonight, we need to temper that with, hey, our culture, it needs truth. I love that video that was showed during the announcements of David Platt just talking about, man, we live in a culture of relativism. Our culture clearly needs truth. The word of the year last year, according to Oxford Dictionary, was post-truth, where we can throw truth out the window and follow our feelings and do whatever makes us happy. But truth doesn't change, regardless of what words you add to your vocabulary. And in its essence, truth is narrow. Truth discriminates. Truth eliminates. As Ravi Zacharias says about truth, he says, truth cannot be sacrificed at the altar of pretended tolerance. Real tolerance is deference to all ideas, but not indifference to the truth. Jesus, in his conversation with Pontius Pilate, he based his mission, his very identity, on the authority of truth. He says, for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. But as much as our culture needs truth, our culture also needs grace. And Jesus, in another conversation with Nicodemus, he based his mission and identity on not the extension of judgment, but on the extension of grace. A lot of us are familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in 3.17, he goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christ came not to condemn, but to save. Come on, may his church walk in that same calling. May we walk as Jesus walked and came on the scene, as it says in John chapter 117, where he came with grace and truth. We as the church should walk with grace in one hand and truth in the other, carrying both at all times, never putting one down. But historically, grace is usually the first one that gets lost. Grace is usually the first one that we put down, and the gravitational pull of our flesh is often towards a graceless religion. But when you read the Gospels, you realize that one of the greatest things Jesus stood against was a graceless religion. Because if the church loses grace, it loses its distinction in the world. The author Gordon MacDonald once said, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses, to feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Come on, if we lose grace, we lose our distinctive. Within Aristotle's ethics, he finds there's no place for a good man to show love to a bad man. But that's the beauty of God's grace. You know, so often in our broken world, we say, man, why do good things happen to bad people? I love that R.C. Sproul Jr. broke it down. He said, that only happened once, and he volunteered. His name was Jesus. You know, in the, in the context of God's grace, good things happen to bad people. You know, in the context of the world, we say all the time, man, why do good things happen to bad people? In the context of God's grace, good things happen to bad people. And when you read passages like Ephesians 2, like we just did, you realize what a beautiful reality that is. You realize the incomparable riches of his grace, that his grace is deep, his grace is rich, and his grace is layered. And the facet of grace that I want to look at tonight 
As this is going to be a series we're going to be in for some time. Tonight, I simply want to look at this fact that from the cross of Christ, grace flows down and out, and it flows to the down and out. From the cross of Christ, grace flows down and it flows out to the down and out. Jesus came down from heaven so that we don't have to climb some ladder of, of, of religion or morality to try to get to him. Jesus came down so that grace could go out and meet us where we're at. Come on, that's so powerful and profound, yet so often we miss that. That God's grace comes to us. It meets us. So for the most far gone, so for the most down and out, God's grace can meet you right where you're at. And we see again and again in Scripture that God isn't an exclusive God. He's actually a a very uh, overwhelmingly inclusive God. You know, there are some theological streams that cite the fact that God chose the Israelites to be his people. They gave him the promised land, and he gave these people the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system to, to atone for the Israelite people, that it foreshadowed a, an exclusive atonement on the cross by Jesus. But from the beginning of Scripture, through the pages of the Bible, and as we'll see tonight, even the story of the Israelites, we see God is an inclusive God with an inclusive grace. And the example, the strong and powerful example I want to look at tonight is in the life of Rahab. Because when we find Rahab, she's outside of the people of Israel. She's in the city of Jericho, which by all means it seems condemned to judgment. And then when we leave her, she's inside the community of Israel, stepping into the lineage of Jesus Christ, covered in grace. I don't know if there's a more powerful picture of God's grace in Scripture, but just this background that, again, God declares the land that the Israelites were about to take, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you wherever you set your feet. I'm going to give you victory against these people. I'm going to give you an overwhelming victory. It's going to give me glory. And yet we see the first move Joshua makes. It's not a, a bold first step, but it's a cautious strategy. He sends two spies to do reconnaissance. As much as everybody in here loves superheroes, and I do myself, I think uh, our culture equally likes movies about spies. Whether it's what, Jack Bauer, Jack Ryan, those are old school, the Harrison Ford ones. Ethan Hunt, Charlie's Angels, 007, probably the top dog in the spy game. But these guys were not uh, 007. They were more uh, Austin Powers than they were Jason Bourne because immediately, it seems in Scripture, they get inside Jericho, and like the next verse, they've already blown their cover. And they have to hide and take cover in the home of Rahab, who's, who's a prostitute named Rahab. Scripture repeats it again and again. So the king of Jericho, he knows they've been there, so he sends men to knock on the door, and he says, give them up. And in this moment, Rahab could have lost her life. We don't know what could have happened to her, but she lies to hide them. She's hidden them, and she tells them, hey, all right, like in cartoons, they went that way. Right? They left the city, and he lead, she leads those people chasing them on a wild goose chase. And then in chapter 2, verse 9 of Joshua, she returns to the spies after sending the king's men away, and she confesses. She says this, really what is a profession of faith. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. 
So the spies agree. And they give her this sure sign. They instruct her, tie this scarlet cord to your window, and we'll know that this is where you're at, and we'll let you live. And ultimately, Rahab and her family were saved. And maybe you might think, well, that sounds like a nice happily ever after after a fairy tale story. But it's interesting. I was watching a documentary recently about the archaeological digs they've been doing in Canaan or what used to be Canaan. And Jericho obviously was a historical city. And when they look at it, the walls fell first and then the city was raised. But what's powerful is that there's a little portion of the wall that still stood. It's crazy. Like They just kind of said it real quickly in the documentary. I was like, pause. Like, that's crazy. There's just a, a little portion of the wall that still stood, right? But that's powerful. But that's just a, a rabbit trail that I think is really cool. <laughs> but the history of Rahab, it shows us that in God's tension between love and judgment, even in moments like the judgment of Jericho, that Psalm 86:15 rings true, that God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. That God is slow to judge, and because of grace, he's quick to save. And maybe you'd ask, how is he slow to judge in this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the story of Jericho, it doesn't begin in Joshua 2. We actually begin to hear about the, the, what would be the promised land all the way back some 600-plus years before that in Genesis, when God is making his covenant with Abraham, and he's telling him that, hey, you're going to have so many descendants. They're going to be a blessing among the nations, but they're going to go through a period of slavery, and then I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to bring them to the promised land. But then it says in Genesis 15, he says, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This people in the land of Canaan. You see, while Israel was growing as a nation, even through slavery in the wilderness, they were growing closer to God. Maybe, maybe taking two steps forward, one step back. But as they drew closer to God in Scripture, we realized that the land of Canaan, it was growing more and more steeped in sin. Not just biblically, but archaeologically, it reveals these, these countries had deplorable practices from bestiality to intentional institutionalized abuse of women to child sacrifice. And yet for 600 years, we see there was a period of waiting. For 600 years, they could have changed. You know, we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, a city like Nineveh, where God sent Jonah and there was revival and the whole city repented. The whole city uh, changed their ways. Now, did God send a Jonah to Jericho? We don't know. If he did, it's not recorded. But what we do know from what Rahab said is that his promises, God's promises, and power were known by the people of Jericho. Rahab speaks in plural pronouns when she says that they realized he was God in heaven and God below. But their response to this for Jericho couldn't have been more different than Rahab's response. Where she looked to surrender, they looked to go to war with God. So this, what could have been an avalanche of grace became a moment of judgment. But even then we realize if we look at Scripture, this wasn't some quick and violent land grab by the Israelites. It was actually an extremely patient and drawn-out judgment. Even when the Israelites get there, after God had waited 600 years, they wait six more days. Six more days. Now, I've heard all kinds of conjecture as to why God had them go around the city six times before the seventh time on the seventh day. All kinds of crazy stuff. To people who thought maybe vibrations weakened the wall, possible. People who thought, man, it was probably just a mind game to get in the heads of Jericho before the walls fell down, also possible. Could have been a, a, all kinds of reasons. But when you look at this passage and you look at it through the lens of God's grace, you realize that God was giving them six more days confronted with this army to change their ways, to repent. To, I mean, the spies said to Rahab, you put this cord on your window and anybody who's under your roof, if they're killed, the blood will be on our heads. For six days, people could have fled there. For six days, people could have stood behind that scarlet cord 
and asked for mercy, asked for grace. But when the seventh day came, it was just Rahab and her family. How much was God hoping that he'd see thousands of scarlet cords, right? But again, what could have been an avalanche of grace that ended in this crushing judgment. But we can't, we can't miss the amazing grace that's in Rahab's story. Because as you go forward to Joshua 6, after the battle, it says in Joshua 6, verses 24 through 25, it says, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And this last sentence is so powerful. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She became a part of the Israelite community. Rahab the prostitute. Scriptures make sure that we don't forget what God saved her from. Six out of eight times when she's mentioned in Scripture, it's as Rahab the prostitute or the prostitute Rahab. Even in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, where she's listed with all these heroes of Scripture, many of you listed at the beginning of this sermon, it's the prostitute Rahab. Joshua, when he speaks of her, when he's telling the spies to go save her, he doesn't even use her name. He said, hey, go to, the, go to the prostitute's house. Yet she becomes a part of the people that were led by Joshua, embraced by a God that's slow to judge and quick to save. Now, this profile of God's grace, it has implications for us as a church that we're going to get to, but it also has implications for anyone and everyone in this room, anyone and everyone who's passing on the street, anyone and everyone who lives and breathes, it has implications for because maybe you carry a label based on your past. Maybe you wear it publicly. Maybe nobody knows it, but you wear it in your mind and in your psyche. It's probably not prostitute, but it might be failure, unfaithful, addict, broken. God's grace is greater than any label, and nothing can stop it. God says, hey, I see your label, but like Rahab, I can give you a legacy. I see your dirt, but I can give you a destiny. I can give you a purpose and a new calling. So maybe you've been walking with a label. Maybe you feel like you've been living in the margins, like nobody sees you. God doesn't see you. You're forgotten or you're forsaken. But God does see you, and God does care. Rahab lived in the margins, literally, the outside wall of this city. And she had three strikes against her as the Israelites came up against this city. One, because she was a woman. Women weren't valued, and they were looked down upon at that time. Two, she was a, a prostitute. And three, she wasn't an Israelite. She was the most unlikely of characters and candidates. She was living in the margin. But again, God's grace flows down and out toward the down and out. And I love again that it says in Ephesians 2, like the rest, we too were objects of God's wrath. Like Rahab, we too were objects of God's wrath. Now, Rahab's profile is one that we may hesitate to identify with, but we should because Rahab's story is our story. Rahab's story is, is the, the nation of Israel's story. God's own people, again and again, are called by God's prophets, prostitutes. It says in the Old Testament that they played the prostitute multiple times. It says multiple times that they prostituted themselves to other gods. And likewise, Rahab's story is our story. Spiritually, we've all walked similar paths. We may not have traded our body for money, but we traded integrity for power, purity for approval, eternal blessing for temporary feelings. With every compromise, we put on Rahab sneakers. Jeremiah 3 is one of these instances in the Old Testament where Israel's called out for spiritual prostitution. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 says this, You have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? And when I read that, verse 1, it sounds incredulous, sounds sarcastic, sounds like he's outraged. Like, would you now return to me after you've been unfaithful with so many other gods and so many other pursuits and you just kind of left me by the wayside? Sounds like a tone of disgust. 
But after a dozen verses, you begin to hear the undertones of grace. And by verse 14, God says, return faithless people, says the Lord, for I am your husband and I will choose you. Come on, he's slow to judge and he's quick to save. Rahab's the, this prostitute, she foreshadows even this prophecy. It's almost like she prophetically foreshadows the prophecy by grace becoming the extended grandmother of kings, the lineage of Jesus Christ, part of the greatest lineage in history, hands down, period. And again, from the cross of Christ, we see his grace reaching the down and out. The implication is that if you feel down and out tonight, you feel forgotten, you feel in the margins, God says the same thing he says here. Return to me. I will choose you. But it also carries two implications for the church that I don't want us to miss. The first is that the church should be reaching Rahab's. The church should be reaching Rahab's. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Isaiah 59.1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Now, when uh, offensive linemen in the NFL, the draft's coming up, uh, when they have short arms, they say they have T-Rex arms. Why? Because T-Rexes have short arms, right? Now, back in my day when I was a little kid, T-Rexes struck fear in the heart of man. Like, Jurassic Park came out when I was, I don't know, I was little. I remember, I remember, fact, that was the first movie that kept me up at night. I mean, raptors could open doors. T-Rexes could outrun Jeeps. Like, I was terrified. It found you on the toilet seat and would eat you like it did to that one guy. All right, so T-Rexes, I didn't play with that. I was scared. Nowadays, you got Rex from Toy Story. What is it, Meet the Robinsons? Didn't they have a pet T-Rex? Like, just ridiculousness. T-Shirt makes fun of T-Rexes. Like, if you know it, clap your hands, but they can't. Can't hug their spouse, right? Can't do push-ups to make their arms stronger. Can't raise their hand in class, so they probably have terrible participation grades. Like, T-Rexes, et cetera, et cetera. You just joke them, you joke them some more. But God doesn't have T-Rex arms. His arm is not too short to save. Whatever boundary you will put on God's grace, he can reach over it, beyond it. He can crush it and overcome it. Any kind of boundary in our life that's us and them or us versus them, where we try to establish that, he obliterates it by his grace. We see it in the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. We see it in Luke chapter 7. Right, a woman who was, as most theologians unanimously agree, likely a prostitute, comes and anoints Jesus, wiping his feet with perfume and her own tears. And the Pharisees said, man, if Jesus really knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let this happen, right? Because they were putting boundaries on God's grace. But you see in Scripture, if they really knew who Jesus was, if they really knew about God's grace, then they would have welcomed that moment. They expected God's grace to operate with some kind of wall or a dam that would, that would block the flow of his grace to the worst of sinners. But from the cross of Christ, grace flows down and out to the down and out. So don't give a damn. And now that I have your attention, to phrase it differently, don't be a damn. Don't provide a damn where God's grace wants to flow. Be a conduit, not a damn. D-A-M, guys. Be a conduit of grace. Because our mission is not to pronounce judgment. Our mission is to announce the Savior who comes in grace, who from the cross, grace goes down and out to the down and out. The New Testament, it mentions Rahab again and again, both in Hebrews and in the book of James, because she embodies what Christ came to see. Outsiders welcomed in. Outcasts making a home in the family of faith. Those people being reached by God's people. Those people becoming a part of God's people. Now, Rahab's story, that should give us boldness in sharing Christ because nobody, no matter how jacked up they seem on the exterior, because we're all jacked up on the interior, let's be serious, nobody is outside the reach of God's grace. 
So we should be bold in our witness, knowing that, that if God can save this person, he can save anybody. Rahab's story should also influence, though, how we share Christ. So often it's with truth but without grace. Speaking the truth out of not love, where the Bible tells us to speak the truth out of love. So often, like the Pharisees, we're quick to judge, but we're slow to show grace. But Jesus was literally the opposite. Religious leaders elsewhere in the Gospels, they bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and say, hey, we're going to stone her. Jesus tells them off first, but then he talks to the woman. And when he encounters her, he tells her that he doesn't condemn her. And he tells her that he doesn't condemn her before he tells her to leave her life of sin. Likewise, and similarly, when the spies make a deal with Rahab to spare her, changing her lifestyle wasn't discussed. She simply confessed her faith right where she was. And it's because grace doesn't wait for you to overcome your past sins. Grace meets you where you are. Grace comes alongside you, and it assists you because we are called to overcome sin, but it meets you right in your sins and then comes alongside you and helps you along the way. Grace uses truth to help people, not hammer them. So often we, the church, and people who call themselves believer, we take the Bible and we hammer people with it. When the spies came back with their report, and they told the Israelites before the battle what their deal was with Rahab, I imagine there were probably some, some people, some rigid religious purists among the Israelites who would scorn their deal as a violation of, of God's command to wipe out Jericho. These fools could get us killed, they probably said. But they failed to grasp that God's grace is slow to judge and it's quick to save. God wants us to help Rahabs, not use the truth to hammer and harass them. But if we're going to reach Rahabs, then that leads to the second implication for the church. The church should be a refuge for Rahabs. I go to the, the YMCA. used to just be because I liked it. Now i got to fight dad bod officially, uh, what the culture calls dad bod. You can look up the hashtag later if you don't know what it is. But I go to the Y, and recently people have been stealing like crazy from the lockers. Just this past week, there was another one. Somebody got their credit card stolen and, like, a gift card. And I was talking to somebody because I just spark conversations all the time at the Y. And that guy, not when you're lifting, right? Like, don't talk to me when I'm lifting, bro. But when you're, in the, when you're in the locker room or just walking around. And there was a guy talking, and we were talking about the stuff that had gotten stolen. And he said, well, so much for this being a Christian organization. It was one of those moments where there's, like, 12 things you want to say, but by the grace of God, your filter catches all of them. <laughs> and you just kind of look at them with a screw face or side-eyed. Because what I want, because just in his assumption was that, hey, Christians are perfect. Christians won't screw up. What I wanted to say was, hey, I'm a pastor of the church. I hope this guy shows up and attends, right? I hope he comes to my church. Because, again, there's that assumption that, that Christians will, will have it all figured out. Couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus didn't come for the healthy or for the folks that act like they have it all together. He came for the sick, the outcast, the misfits, and the broken. That's why I couldn't be more proud to be a part of a church. Like, our reputation is we're a welcoming church. We had an event last year where somebody asked, like, well, how do you train your volunteers to be so welcoming? And what do you do? What do you run them through? It's like, no, we just, we're nice people. We like folks, right? But because Jesus comes for the sick, the outcast, the misfits, and the broken, when people come to church, sometimes they feel out of place. They feel like misfits because they don't know the X, Y, and Z. They don't know what propitiation and sanctification and justification mean. And that's why people need to have a place where they can belong as they grow in belief. The church should be a refuge for the seeming misfits because Jesus didn't say come, come as you should be. He said come as you are. Some folks in the world, by the world's standards, they may seem further along and generally better people than some of the people in the church because we start broken and work from there. 
That's not a reason to throw shade at the church because there's people that aren't perfect in the church. That's a reason to celebrate the church. It's a reason to, to, to champion the church because it's indicative of the fact that Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick. As he says himself in Mark 2.17, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Again, those farther along in their walk who have been walking with the Lord longer, they might be even rougher around the edges than some others because God reaches the broken. And there are no shortcuts to maturity. That's what you came here tonight for. Sorry. There's no microwave sanctification, right? Growth is gradual. Everyone is in process and nobody has arrived. That's why Tim Keller says, and I think it was the reason for God, he says, churchgoers may be weaker psychologically and morally than non-churchgoers. That should be no more surprising than the fact that people sitting in a doctor's office are on the whole sicker than those who are not there. Churches rightly draw a higher proportion of needy people, or I would say people that recognize their need. We all need them. But the people that recognize their need and open up themselves and all the dirt and all the ugliness that might be in there, those are the people come on, that we should be championing and cherishing. The church has this draw because, again, it has what the world doesn't, grace. Good things happening to bad people because of Jesus Christ and the cross. We should be a refuge for people like Rahab who recognize their need. We should be a refuge for Rahab's. And I love that Rahab settles in with the Israelites. And I'm sure, again, questions arose, like, is she really going to stay with us? Is she going to pitch a tent next to my husband, right? Like, is she going to compromise the purity of our camp? She's going to contaminate our community. But along comes a man named Salmon from the tribe of Judah who saw this reformed prostitute, a woman of grace, and he makes this woman his wife. And from their marriage comes not only all kinds of heroes of Scripture, but it comes Jesus Christ. It's powerful. Again, one of the biggest, most profound pictures of grace in all of Scripture. But we realize that her label didn't determine her legacy. God said, yeah, I see the label that people throw on you that's even mentioned in Hebrews. Yes, you were a prostitute, but here's your legacy. You're the grandmother of kings. You're the ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I see your dirt, but here's a destiny. I see what you've been struggling with, but here's your calling. Come on, we might have labels, but God gives us legacies. By grace, we too can stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ as family. It's a powerful thing thought, but Paul breaks it down in Ephesians 1, this family of faith that we get to step into. But if I could have the worship team come up, again, there are implications of this story of grace for every person here tonight. And if you're down and out, you feel like you've been in the margins, you maybe feel like not only people have kind of pushed you to the margins, maybe some of you feel like, hey, I just feel like God has pushed me to the margins. Like, I'm still waiting on this answer. I'm still waiting on this to come through. I've been praying for it. And I just feel like God's forgotten me or maybe God's just forsaken me. But God's grace flows down and out toward the down and out. And God's grace tonight, it wants to meet you not where you could be, not where you should be, but where you're at. God's grace wants to meet you tonight. If we could stand, we're going to go into worship. If we could just stand in this moment. Again, there's this beautiful picture in Scripture that's been meaningful to me, obviously. It's in Ephesians 1, where it talks about how we're adopted into God's family by grace. The whole, obviously, the, the whole picture of adoption, it's, it's been meaningful to me. And I think about Raj and how he lived in the margin, right? And he was forgotten in this orphanage. And it's not that Steph and I are heroes, 
but he's this beautiful reminder to us that we too at one point were forsaken. We too deserved wrath, but because of Jesus, not only is there grace to cover our sin, but we stand with Jesus Christ in the family of faith. We get to stand in a church with other believers and worship God in this place. I love that it says in verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. But then it answers the why in verse 6. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Come on, we don't just study the grace of God for head knowledge and familiarity. We study the grace of God because it should fuel our worship, because it should spark our praise. So I want to close tonight simply worshiping, praising God, because that's why we get the glimpses of, of, of the incomparable riches of his grace. It's to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious name, Jesus Christ. And just, I, I'd encourage you now, if you're here tonight, you've never embraced Jesus Christ as king, as Lord, or even as God the Father. Come on, I'd encourage you to do that tonight. You can do it in your seat, but I would love to pray for you. I know Anthony would love to pray for you, uh, and we would love to just give you resources as you begin a life that follows him. But can we all praise God tonight? Because as it said again in Ephesians 2, every one of us was brought out of a mess and put on the rock, Jesus Christ. And it's done so that we can praise his glorious grace. Come on, let's praise him tonight.